episode of Dark Rhino Security, Security Confidential. Today, we are honored to have Jeff Manhart join us. Jeff is the Chief Project Officer at Kaleida Health, President of the PMI Buffalo Chapter, and an adjunct professor at Damon College. Jeff believes in the art of the possible and the power of the why. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thanks for joining us. It's awesome to be here, and I'm glad that you're checking out my LinkedIn profile. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, it, there's some interesting things on there, especially when you put the power of the why and the art of the possible it uh, th those are you know catch attention they catch a lot of attention in fact maybe start with that what what is uh give a little uh, bit on your philosophy here sure no i appreciate that i'll tell you uh i read a lot and simon sinek talks a lot about the power of why uh, i read that a few years ago and it really kind of built that into everything that i do whether it's uh part of PMI or as part of teaching at Damon or it's part of my work at Kaleida. Uh, you bring people with you when they believe in the why. So that's how I believe in the power there. And then, you know, the art of the possible is a great example of uh, discovering what you may not already know. And I think sometimes we get into the things that we know, we stay on that path, and we, we forget to, to look outside that path and discover new possibilities. You know, uh, those are two tremendous statements. You know, on the power of the why, we, uh, on the cybersecurity side, at least I can tell you, uh, we always try and preach to our clients that their biggest cybersecurity asset is their people. Uh, bigger than any technology, bigger than any anything they have in place. And if they take the time to bring them into the fold and explain to them the why behind policies, the why they want certain behaviors, then what you find normally is people are very reasonable. And if they understand the why, they're gonna adopt it much more likely than if it's just a mandate, do this or else. <laughs> you know, that, that rarely works. <laughs> well, and think about yourself, right? If, you, if someone tells you you gotta have a 19 character password and you just, well, why bother? I don't see the value. But if you walk through what uh, cyber criminals can do uh, when you have a four or five character password that you know starts with your home address uh, and how they can access uh, your entire digital footprint, uh, then they start to think a little bit differently about why security is important. Yes, very much so. Um, great example. And, you know, stepping out of one's paradigm, I, you see this a lot. If, if you believe you know everything, then you've given up all possibilities, right? Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, I learn every day. I learn from the folks that work for me. I learn from the folks uh, that I work for, and uh, I learn from my family. So I try to have a mantra of learn something new every day. Well, I hope you're successful with that. And if you do, then you're a very wise man, much wiser than I, <laughs> I can tell you that. <laughs> so tell me, you know, this this whole past year, uh, you're, you're in healthcare. It's been insane. I mean, we've heard the horror stories. We've seen the tragedies unfold as a result of the pandemic. Uh, but when when you look at a major health system and running projects for it, how has that impacted uh, you folks on the on the back end of things? Has, well, 
You know, it was a year ago at this time uh, on a Friday when uh, my boss said, you know, I think we're going to need to send people home and uh, we're going to need to figure out how to get them the opportunity to work from home. Uh, in the, in uh, the space where I'm at, most of the folks were working from the office. Uh, we didn't have really a work from home policy. So we had, a, we had a change policy and technology within 48 hours. Uh, and that included thousands of people being moved to that remote space. Uh, tremendous amount of uh, time and effort to make that happen, but that was just the start. Uh, we had a look at telehealth, which was a technology that was in place, but not used for a variety of reasons, whether it was reimbursement or it was, uh, you know, not uh, the adoption wasn't there. Uh, and that went from the, an also ran product to a lifeblood of the organization. Uh, and that was, again, the start of the the challenges that occurred over the next few months uh, through even today. Uh, we've had to be agile, uh, big A and small A. You know, we could talk about that. We also had to be nimble about uh, what needed to occur at a moment's notice. And that still happens today. You look at uh, uh, testing and uh, vaccines that are coming out. And the hospital systems are at the forefront of those as well. Well, I, I got to imagine, like when you're implementing a remote workforce and uh, work from home telehealth. I mean, when we think of uh, healthcare on cybersecurity, we're thinking a lot about compliance issues. We think about high trust, SOC two, Type two. We think about uh, HIPAA, and. Did you guys get a reprieve on some of these regulatory mandates from the federal government uh, as this pandemic escalated? Yeah, I mean, the short answer is no. Uh, those things, those are paramount, whether the government uh, requires it or our patients require it. It's, it's important and imperative to have a system that is trusted by the patients and the physicians alike. Uh, so we had to go in with that as a starting point. Do we have the security in place at a core level and can we build upon that? And that's how we addressed that. Again, we addressed it quickly within, within hours in some cases, and it took you know, calls to a lot of our vendors to work through some things, uh, but you, you, can't, you can't shortchange that. So from a regulatory uh, and compliance perspective, were there things that emerged uh, that might not have emerged as a result of the environment that everyone was going into? I would say there's things that uh, hastened uh, because of the environment uh, with COVID. There was conversation uh, over time around uh, telehealth and some of the components with it. There was even some conversations around work from home and there were always, um, there were always some roadblocks that had to be thought through. And a lot of times we would uh, let those string out. And we, we didn't have a sense of urgency uh, prior to the pandemic about allowing folks to work from home or putting the environment in place to allow folks to work from home uh, from a compliance and legal perspective. And uh, again, that, that, had, that had to change. It forced our hand uh, and it hastened things that uh, had been in the works for a while. You know, telehealth, um at least personally, I can say it's it's been great. I mean, you, you, it's such an efficient means. It's surprising to me that people were resistant 
to it actually because it's it's uh it's safe you don't have to go into the hospital or your doctor's office you can you don't have to wait in a waiting room you can do it all um in seconds actually i the the process at least what i was involved with here at in cleveland clinic was seamless it was it was great so it's surprising when um the it, it appears that uh people were not ready to adopt it as much prior to the pandemic sure you know i'll i'll take a book out of change management and and recognize that people don't like to change all right and i think that is uh that's inherent in everything and and inherent here as well right if the thing works if going to the doctor works if going into an office works then you know how can the doctor do the same things they should do how can they do those same things uh over the phone how can they check my my hearing or how can they uh, check with a, a stethoscope those are things that you know we had to get through and had to have conversations around but to your point when people had that experience and it was seamless and it did work uh it changed a lot of hearts and minds and you know you uh there's two things that come up uh in what you said one is uh people don't like to inherently change is there any advice you can offer either as a professor or as an expert project management <laughs> professional as when you're implementing a a program that is going to involve some kind of cultural change how do you make that shift happen amongst the the general population in in the company you know, uh, the buy-in, the power of why is really important. I think I think that's a great starting point. I leverage um, some change management uh, things that I had learned in the past around awareness first. You gotta you gotta have an awareness of what the change is. Then you have to build desire for the change, and that's where the why comes in. Why do I want this change? Why? What is it going to do to help me? I have to have some knowledge around what the change actually is. Uh, then I have to have the ability to be part of that change, whether it's being part of training or being communicated to. Uh, and then there's reinforcement, right? You can't just say this thing is going to change on Saturday and then never talk about it again. On Sunday and Monday and Tuesday, you have to have that same conversation around why that change is valuable. And uh, with that reinforcement, it completes the loop. And that's those are the things that I look at when we try to change that that's a tough uh order to follow actually i mean think about it at a at an enterprise level where thousands of people may be involved it, it uh i would imagine it i know in fact it encounters probably a lot of resistance <laughs> when you get to the execution of it. oh sure and there's uh you know luckily there's a framework around change management that uh that we can leverage that works well for enterprise-wide organizations, but no matter what framework you put in place, you have to start with the power of why. And if, if people don't buy in, uh, it becomes very difficult for that change to occur. So uh, the other thing that goes along with that is uh, how do you measure, have, have the metrics changed uh, with the new work environment and the conditions by which you measure a project or measure success or measure key milestones. Uh, has, have you seen any changes there? What I would say is that some of the change was already afoot. If you work on agile teams, 
uh, you're already used to uh, metrics occurring in a very rapid period of time where you, you stand up, you talk about yesterday's work, you talk about today's roadblocks, you talk about uh, things you, uh, you, know, you succeeded at. Those are, those are things that uh, Agile teams have learned as a way of working that were helpful in the pandemic uh, efforts. I think that uh, from a metric perspective, we we changed a bit of the uh, the grandioseness of some of our uh, dreams. Right? It became how do we get from here to there, not how do we get you know uh, you know twenty miles away. And I think that helped uh, that crystallized and focused people in a way that may have been different uh, pre-pandemic. What direction do you see the project management techniques or methodologies evolving in the brave new world? Because I would imagine some of these changes are now going to be permanent with us. Even after vaccination, maybe people want to work at home now and they've discovered <laughs> they can. Uh, <laughs> and, and doctors maybe want to do their office visits, at least half of them away. Or, you know what, there's a case maybe how... Where do you see the future going here with uh, project management techniques where you may not all be co-located anymore? You know, I've heard uh, things around permanency. You know, this is going to be a permanent part of uh, life going forward but, uh, recently. What I would say is that things are cyclical. Uh, and uh, I've seen that over my career where we go in these ebbs and flows. And this is an example of uh, people recognizing the value of being able to have some focused time and some of that alone time not everyone because some be, some people have you know homes filled of people that uh, and, and distractions but in a lot of cases folks have the ability to focus differently when they're working remotely than they may in an office situation with lots of folks around i think there's going to be some recognition there's value there and the other side of that uh, you know, I, I go back to the stories around Yahoo and the experiences that occurred with sending everyone home and then bringing everyone back. And what I what I took away from reading through those uh, experiments is that collisions matter. And what I mean by that is it's hard for you and I to have a collision when we're remote and zooming into each other and I have to call you or text you and say, hey, can you talk for a second? versus uh, we're walking down the hall, we chat for a couple minutes, and they say, you know what, there's that thing that we want to talk about that, uh, and we finish that conversation up in five minutes. Uh, and that kind of collision is still valuable, and I think will continue to be valuable in the future. Uh, I would agree. Uh, we've seen uh, on our side the way uh, sales happens now has dramatically changed in the last year. Right, gone are the uh, the personal uh, handshakes and the and the sure. evenings and the lunches and the you know the uh, ability to build a relationship. Uh, a lot of things have got to happen remotely now. Um, a lot of people are not in the work, uh, are not in a place where they even want to meet. So we've seen a dramatic change um, from a traditional sales model in our industry uh, in that regard. And I think what we have found is that there has been a certain efficiency that we have gained. But as you described it, those collisions are important. And we have not yet solved the puzzle of how to bring those collisions back because um, I think they're, they're intricate to, 
building relationships. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's uh, it builds a trust factor. I think that's one of the things that I find when you have an opportunity to see folks in person and have that dialogue in person and, and have maybe some of that small talk. It builds a level of trust, a level of understanding that's hard to do uh, in other formats. Uh, though, though, you know, we've all tried. And I think to your point, some of the things that have occurred over the last year have actually made us more efficient uh, because we're not doing those 20 minutes of conversation around a two minute uh, topic. Uh, we do the two minute topic, we move on to the next two minute topic. So there is some efficiency that we've gained, uh, but then you know there's there's always a balance uh, with this stuff. Let me ask you a uh, selfish question here uh, in regards to cybersecurity, because you are on sure. a cybersecurity podcast. So how how do you think uh, cybersecurity should be incorporated into project execution? Uh, you know, I think it starts at the beginning. Uh, one of the things that we built into the methodology we've implemented at uh, Collider Health is the uh, the recognition that at the beginning of a project, at the initiation, it's important to have, whether it's a, a person or a questionnaire, the components around security. What are What are the things that we're trying to do with this technology or with this project? Are we looking to uh, connect outside the firewall? Are we looking to uh, take a video stream and transport it to doctors worldwide? How are we doing that? Is it secure? Is it encrypted? And all those things. Those are the questions we've got to ask at the beginning uh, because it will impact us at the end. And so uh, so upfront is is my model. So, you know, having said that, do you think there is a recognition that maybe cyber security is more of a business problem than an IT problem? Uh, is that a recognition by well, sure. executive? Uh, look at the, you know, look at the headlines that, that come out of uh, issues of hacking or ransomware. They don't talk about how uh, the Cisco router failed or how a you know, encryption logarithm didn't work right. They talk about the business impact of that thing occurring. And uh, and so I think I think there is absolutely a recognition that cybersecurity is a business problem and a business thing to solve. Yeah, I, and I ask this uh, because, and I'll just say it on my personal past experience it, with some larger health systems, not not smaller providers, where you know there's a choice to make. There's a finite budget and. If you're looking at equipment and things that are needed by the facility, they typically have always had a very high priority, and understandably so, when it when it comes. Uh, and cyber's kind of taken IT. Maybe I should generalize and say sometimes IT is even taken a back seat, if you will, to mainstay hospital initiatives. Is that is my perception incorrect now? And hopefully, it's it's changing. I would say my my experience is no matter which industry that you're in, unless you're specifically in a development industry, you may be in banking or in construction or in healthcare, it is it is easy to think of IT as the plumbing of the organization. And you know who thinks about the sewers you know, when you're trying to build a house, right? Uh, uh, so so it's easy to have that kind of mentality. Uh, what I have seen with some maturity over time is business uh, folks learning some technology and technology folks learning the business. And when those two
two areas can combine, they can have a conversation around uh, the balance that's needed. And, uh, and I think you know, just to be frank, the things around hacking and cybersecurity issues that have occurred and the ransomware things that have occurred are pervasive, pervasively communicated in the media and no one wants to be on the front page of the news with the next ransomware attack. So those things I think um, have kind of burrowed into the psyche of some business folks. You know, it would be great if you could put together a class on how to get business people and technology people to conjoin, if you will. <laughs> I, I think that that would that would be worth the price of admission for sure. <laughs> it would. You you and I can work on that. We'll we'll tell yeah. them, make a fortune. <laughs> and and that brings us to actually to PMI. I mean, you are the president of PMI Buffalo. Uh, how do you? Where do you see PMI as an organization? going in the future? I mean, there, there's a lot of competition to it. So how do you see it? Where do you see it going, especially in yeah, terms I've, of providing value? Yeah, I'll tell you something. I've been involved with PMI since 2005 and been on the board of PMI Buffalo since 2007. I spent some time with the global organization along with other chapter leaders from around the world. And what I think is truly unique about PMI that other uh, competition organizations don't really have. It's the community. They built a community of chapters and chapter leaders and uh, memberships from the ground up over decades of time. And that, uh, and that local control, that local capability to understand the market they're in and be able to manage to that market, I think is a huge asset. Then tag on to that, the, the average of six volunteers per chapter with 300 chapters around the world the the strength and power of those volunteers is is second to none uh, but you look at the optics as well and look at reality and there are organizations like safe and csm uh, scrum alliance and others right. that uh you know, take a look and say we want to be part of this as well and uh and so what pmi has done uh, within the last three or four years is they have moved from a position of strength to what the future could look like and uh, purchased or acquired organizations like Brightline and uh, Discipline Agile that allow them, allow the organization to step into those spaces and step past those spaces to the next way of working that I think is tremendously valuable. Uh, you know, is there more work to do? Yeah, I think there is. And I think PMI recognizes that. It's one of the reasons why they uh, created a project kickoff, project snippets, and a couple other uh, items that allow them to connect to the folks that are not running projects every hour of every day, but maybe need just the basics of what project management can help with. And they've also gone to the other side with program management and portfolio management for those huge construction projects that last decades and that need you know, the full breadth uh, and depth of what project management can bring to the table. Uh, so I think that's a, that's a great strength. And uh, I hope that they, they continue to be innovative into the future. So do you have any advice for other chapter presidents or boards that maybe smaller organizations that might be struggling right now to provide value to their 
members, maybe be a bad choice of words, but you know, <laughs> because I look at, I remember uh, here locally in Pittsburgh, we used to have a lot of PMI meetings and sure. uh, there were a lot of training classes and things that happened. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of that has slowed down through no fault of the chapters or the chapter members. Um, so what are the, any advice to the, to the chapter organizations on how to uplift their membership, if you will? I think every chapter organization for PMI and other associations around the world, not just project management associations, but others as well, uh, lost membership uh, within the last year, whether folks lost their job and couldn't pay for the certification or the membership, or whether organizations themselves stopped paying for that membership, uh, or you know, life just got in the way. Those things uh, have occurred, and you know those, those are uh, pretty public things that uh, chapter associations have to to work through. Uh, when I look at what uh, we uh, thought about and planned for uh, the summer of last year, uh, as we talked through how the pandemic is changing what we're doing, we focused on a couple things. The first is that what we know from our surveys and from our member discussions is that. The number one reason people attend our events is the PDUs. About 80% of our members are, are PMP certified or ACP certified. So they have some certification that requires the professional development units to continue their development. And so that, that work we do, whether it's a virtual dinner event or it's a virtual PDD event, uh, there's value from that perspective. The second is is networking. We know that that's the number two reason why people attend our events and the number two value people get out of our events. And so uh, from a you know, from a virtual perspective, we had to rethink and reimagine what that networking looks like. Yeah. Right? We can't do the face-to-face -face conversation anymore. You can't have that one-to-one -one conversation over a drink or a glass of water anymore, right? So we had to Reimagine what that looked like with uh, different tools and techniques, a little gamification of the events that we that we did using some breakouts and other pieces of technology. Uh, and, and that has kept it fun and exciting uh, for our members that have attended. And in many cases, our um, event attendance actually went up in uh, 2020. One, they were free. Uh, we didn't we didn't charge because we didn't have to pay for dinner. Right? We, most of our dinner events, the, the the main cost goes to actually paying for the food and the the venue. Those not being there, we didn't have those costs, and so we made those events uh, uh, free. And what I saw were those folks that were geographically separated, even by 10, 15 miles from that normal event location, were able to attend. A dinner event virtually and did i would not have uh guessed that that's really good to know uh, that's that's surprising and, and and that's wonderful uh if you know you're getting much yeah. greater participation 
I mean, it, dinner was nice. I mean, <laughs> wrong, but, but have you been able to pick up sponsors in the process now? Uh, you know, the virtual sponsors for sure. <laughs> Again, everything's got to be reimagined. And I, I'll tell you, we've been, we were fortunate that we had some exclusive agreements with some sponsors who maintain that agreement uh, through the pandemic events. So we appreciate uh, their work that they've done. Uh, and uh, we, we reimagined some other uh, folks who may have not been uh, interested in the local space, but maybe because maybe they have a broader na national um, footprint. But when we talk virtual and we invite other folks from Rochester or other chapters to join us on these virtual events, uh, all of a sudden the conversation changes. Wow, that's uh, that's fantastic. So let me ask you uh, a little bit of a controversial question here, possibly, and that is. You know, PMI last year changed the way in which uh, PMP certifications could happen and changed the criteria. Uh, I imagine that had an impact on the chapters. Is there, what are your thoughts about it or how do you foresee uh, overcoming maybe some potential revenue losses that may have resulted from that? Yeah, you know, I don't know that it's um, controversial. I think PMI has been upfront with what they've told us as chapters and have told the uh, the folks that were providing education. What PMI recognizes part of their brand, part of their strongest brand, is the uh, project management professional certification, and their uh, the survey results and the analysis they did. Uh, found that there was an unevenness around the world of the training that was being done in preparation for that certification. And uh, like any organization interested in, in addressing their brand, protecting it and advancing it, they, they focused on how to best do that. And, you know, th did that have impact on, on chapters like PMI Buffalo? You know, it, it did, at least in the short term. Uh, the, the revenue stream is different than it was uh, last year, and, uh, and the, the costs are different than they were last year. Uh, I think it's gonna take us a bit of time to, to work through some of that. Uh, but I do know that PMI is aware of those challenges, and uh, they, they continue to listen to the chapters. That is probably the most powerful statement. If they are listening to folks like you, then uh, ultimately we would hope whatever direction goes, it will be in alliance with you, with you folks. Yeah. And speaking of alliances, I guess now I'm going to put myself on the spot and I'm going to let all our listeners know, you know, Dark Rhino Security. Uh, yeah, you know, our core business is cybersecurity, but we also uh, have a large hosting business and, and we're very fortunate to have folks like PMI Buffalo and many of the chapters worldwide uh, be our clients and customers uh, from uh, the hosting association side uh, of our business. And I'd like to ask you, Jeff, what are your expectations of us as a hosting provider? What what do you need from us? Well, you know, I would start off with security. Uh, we want to make sure that the web hosting platform we have is a secure platform. We provide our chapter members with uh, member authenticated uh, documentation and uh, content that allows them to have a premium view of content that uh, that are that folks who are not members don't have access to and the ability to keep that secure keep the the rest of the website secure is is paramount I think the other thing that uh, I have uh, 
recognized and appreciated Dark Rhino does is uh, provide a web hosting environment that is easy to use from a new administrator perspective. Uh, we are all volunteers. We've talked about that before. Chapter volunteers make up you know, the, the worldwide organization. And uh, those chapter volunteers uh, typically uh, come in and out of an organization every couple of years. It's the nature of volunteering. And the, the challenge often is with technology, hey, new person coming in, you're responsible for updating the website. Uh, you've got two minutes of training from your previous uh, you know, predecessor who was in that space, uh, go. And you know, I think Dark Road does a good job of two things. One, making the interface intuitive to use and work with and to providing training options for folks that are coming into that space that uh, you know some of our other web hosting providers really didn't have before. Uh, so those are things that have been that have been great. Can we do more in that space? Sure, I'd love to see integrations in uh, into other technologies, Slack and maybe Trello and some other things that can provide value. Instagram, Facebook, social media components. Those are uh, great integration components that I think will take us to the next level. Uh, would it be great to have a mobile app that's directly connected? Uh, I think that's something we can talk about, a native app in that space. Okay. Uh, I, I'll, I'll say that uh, so far to date, uh, Dark Brown has been a, a fabulous partner. That's uh, very kind of you to say. And had you critiqued us, I think that would have been fair too. So I, I'll leave that over. Is there anything that you would like to critique us about that you... <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I always look at things as where can we go from here, and, and I'll I'll take the uh, the next steps of integration with some of those other uh, the technologies I mentioned, and the ability to have a, a mobile app I think is going to be valuable, especially when we get back to in-person events. I'd love to be able to use uh, QR codes and other things to be able to tag folks in. There's some of that built into our current uh, structure. But I think there's. There's more that can be done in that space. Love to see that. We will. Uh, well, I can tell you that everyone that is responsible for this is going to listen to this. So that, <laughs> I can guarantee you one thing that the word will get to the all the people that matter. Uh, and awesome. I'll personally make sure that uh, <laughs> they are listening. I appreciate so, that. You know, uh, you know, as uh, we come to the end of this, I thought I'd ask, are there any events, books that you are going to be publishing, any virtual appearances or public appearances you're going to be doing? Anything you'd like to plug and uh, <laughs> let everybody know about? Uh, well, I appreciate the platform. It's been awesome. Uh, great having a conversation with you today. It's been it's been really fun. I would say that you know, our premier events are our professional development day events, and I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the one coming up in April. Uh, we're doing uh, two half-day training sessions that are on the, the 21st and uh, 22nd. Uh, it gives the our members and folks who are interested in attending the ability to build effective multi-generational a remote workforce. So what better time than to have this kind of uh, presentation? And we're going to also have uh, the the second presentation on uh, sprinting in the new agile world. Uh, kind of a little play in the words, but it's going to be an exciting uh, two half day event. Well, I'll tell you this, uh, this 
it, our show here, this episode will be uh, live on March 22nd. So hopefully uh, you'll get some attendees who might listen through here. It's so, awesome. All are welcome. That That's fantastic. Jeff, anything else you would like to uh, add? Any parting thoughts? No, I, I would just say this has been a great uh, honor for me. Appreciate the conversation today. And I'm glad you're doing this. I think it's really helpful for folks to be able to hear from uh, people like them out in the world. And uh, I think it's a great service. Well, we appreciate that. And that's our aim. We want to educate people uh, on what their fellow colleagues may be doing with real world experiences and, and maybe some practical knowledge that they can put to use in their own daily routines. And with that, everyone, uh, we thank Jeff for joining us. Jeff, it's been an honor. And uh, My pleasure. thanks for staying up so late uh, to do this. <laughs> it's awesome. Have a great night. Mm -hmm.